Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of education research in the classroom. Each episode features a conversation with a different guest, teachers, authors and others interested in education, talking about what the phrase from page to practice means to them and the importance of applying evidence to classroom practice. Hi and welcome back if you're joining us again or welcome along if you're joining for the first time. For those of you returning, I hope you're enjoying the new format. Last week I treated you to two conversations in one episode, but from this episode onwards I'll be sharing just one, as most, like this one, are a bit longer. Okay, morning. So I'm here talking to Adam Lamb. So Adam, could you introduce yourself for anybody who doesn't know you? Absolutely. Hello, um, I'm Adam Lamb. Um, I am Head of Learning Area for Languages, so I've spread across uh, Spanish, French, Turkish, Latin classics um, at a secondary school in Hackney in East London. Um, in a prior life, I've also been a lead practitioner covering um, teacher training, looking at overseeing our on-site provision of that, looking at as well working with various learning areas across the school, including the likes of uh, physical education, I've worked with humanities, um, English to help coach their staff to do a few observations, work with their leaders as well on that capacity as in, in terms of teaching and support and um, coaching. And I have also been literacy across the academy coordinator in a previous school in the northeast of England. So lots of different things then. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, so, um, very much teaching and learning orientated though. Exactly what we want to talk about. So what does the phrase from page to practice mean to you other than being the title of this podcast? I think from page to practice, I think sums up what a lot of schools should be aiming for in terms of when they're looking at evidence-based, when they're looking at evidence-based and when they're looking at research. I think a lot of people that I've met, a lot of practitioners that I've met maybe have heard of things such as Rosenstein's principles, or they might have heard of um, Lamov, or for instance, I don't know, somebody who I'm a big fan of personally and whose research makes a lot of sense to me is Alex Quigley. And they'll hear of these things such as um, the principles and looking at effective questioning. But for page from page to podcast for me means how do you take these people's research? How do you then apply it to your setting? And I think you cannot just take an educational piece of research and just parachute it in. You often get like lethal mutations, so it might be implemented in the wrong way. You have to have some the banana rama effect. I love that term. Um, <laughs> but you, you you have to really really think about your setting. You have to really think about the students in front of you and the systems that are in place in your school. There's you, the research has to bend a little bit, I guess, to fit what works with your school. I think that's really important. I also think as well that a lot of staff hear these names and just stick their noses up at it and just think, well, who who might know this, especially the more experienced members of staff who've maybe been doing this for years and years and who given feedback to or can sometimes be a little bit more difficult, I guess, and you have to manage those conversations carefully. And I think from page to podcast for me is really about how we make 
research accessible, how we make it make sense for, especially in my view as a leader, how we make it make sense for those who's, who work in our teams who maybe are less experienced for, than us, who aren't as well read as us, who maybe find that there's a kind of a disconnect between a lot of education research out there and what they do in the classroom and what works in the classroom. I think that's really important. So that's yeah. what it means for me. Perfect. And you know what? I maybe the title of my podcast, but I couldn't have put it better. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Could you let us know what it is you've come to talk about today? So I've come to talk today about a problem. Um, <laughs> don't worry, it's not a problem, Page. Um, so the problem was um, a classic one that happens up and down the country in many modern foreign languages classrooms. And it's our students having a deficit in receptive skills. So for those of you who maybe aren't languages teachers, we have um, two. We have four different skill sets that our students are assessed on. They're assessed on speaking, listening, reading, and writing. The speaking and the writing elements are things that we produce. So the idea is we produce a piece of work or um, a piece of target language speech at the end of it, whereas the receptive skills are about our understanding. So for instance, having a text in front of you or listening to a message and deciphering meaning from that. And as teachers, I think what we can do very well is we can very well coach our students for the productive skills because we can give them strategies such as sentence builders um, and we can teach grammar. We can help students make sense of that a lot more easily. We can give models. I think it's a lot easier to model the productive skills. But when you're teaching a student to read, I think that kind of modeling comes away and it's a lot more difficult to coach students for that skill. And what was interesting for me was, um, and I would encourage anybody to use this tool if you can, many exam boards use um, kind of results analysis. They provide you with a wealth of information after the exam takes place. Um, And I was also generating the same kind of um, the same kind of information myself through our use of departmental trackers. We call ours the beast because it is a beast of a spreadsheet. <laughs> um, so I was generating all this information and looking at how my students were doing in that skill of reading in comparison to the listening, to the speaking, and to the writing. And there was just a huge disparity between how students were doing on the product- productive skills and reading and even listening, which tends to be the more difficult skill the students were still five percent performing five percent worse on the reading exam in comparison to listening and it was something that I really wanted to explore and look at as part of the charter college um final project in which you look at practitioner inquiry so you come up with a problem you delve into it you explore what it is and I didn't want to do something that was just kind of our retrieval practice let's have a go at this and do something that was particularly um maybe quite well researched i think compared to the likes of literacy i wanted to do something that was maybe a little bit more would force me to search out a lot more research and not just that have an actual real impact on attainment and that was really important to me especially my setting as well um we we were very much a data-driven school and i think one of my strengths as a linguist we don't often deal with numbers but i feel like um I'm, I'm a dab hand at a, at a good old Excel spreadsheet. So <laughs> I wanted to, to I wanted to kind of amalgamate the two and knowing that I had that level of 
data already at my disposal, I thought, let's see what I can do, run with that and see what the outcomes will be um, when I look at reading. So that that was my starting point, essentially. Yeah, so it sounds great. So I think there's like three different spokes of things I want to talk about here. So there's yeah. what you're, what you read and what you researched and what you found out, uh, how all of those people who are listening um, can find this applicable to them, even if they're nothing to do with languages, and a bit about the C-Teach, which anybody who's listened before knows I've got a bit of a vested interest in anyway. But let's start with what did you, you know, when I first started from Page to Practice, you came on this podcast to talk about um, Alex Quigley's first book in this kind of series he's done, didn't did. you? So how have things moved on since then? What have you what have you read this time around? Um, so this time around, what was interesting was, and I think it's something that we talk about, we talk about research. And I don't think, I think we're very good at looking at teaching and learning as a whole looking at things such as um, research or good research, such as the principles of um, instruction. We're very good at looking at um, the likes of works by Doug Lamov. What I don't think we're good at, and I know this was particularly the weakest of mine, was I didn't really research with anything that was specifically MFL-based. And I think a lot of practitioners, we, we shove research down their throats, but we don't encourage them to look at subject-specific. So I really wanted to delve into that. Um so most of it was based on, um, the first thing I did was I read a letter by Professor Catherine Cole, and she is a professor at the University of Oxford, and she rallied a whole group of academics together in 2019, and she sent a letter to the UK government about the quality of language education, and how just how the GCSE was unfit, I guess, and we look at some of the words that were coming up in the exams. Um, and that's like things that native speakers would never use. I think she cited an example from German in an A-level exam that was just absolutely obscene. And it just how she, it can make for a demoralizing exam experience. I think one of those things for me straight away, which I thought demoralized students was that reading and them knowing straight away they're going to get a poor mark. So I had a look at, um, obviously I started with um, this um, Lou. And Lou, um, she's got a paper out in 2010, she has a really, really good um, paper on reading strategies and she explains what bottom-up reading processing is and what um, top-down is. And I delved into that a little bit further. There was some really, really nice um, research from Goff as well in 1972, which is earlier on. And the early research really, really kind of backed more um, bottom-up reading. So looking at going from a smaller scale, so looking at phonemes, looking at individual word parts to building up to a whole. What was interesting was later on, when you look at the chronology of the references, that kind of bottom up, then all of a sudden the kind of research tendency seemed to favor top down, which was quite interesting. And the top down reading was more, for instance, looking at our lived experiences. So for instance, if I go to, I don't know, a train station, I don't know if I go to my local one, Hackney Downs, if I go to a that train station now i'm looking to catch a train to london liverpool street for instance and i arrive at that train station at 8 20. i've got three pieces of information there that are going to inform how i read that train timetable i have got the train station from which i'm departing because if i look at one that's further down the line say chingford <laughs> that's going to give me the wrong information i've also got the time at which i arrive as well that context so for instance if i'm arriving at 8 20 I know that any train before then, I'm not going to be able to catch. 
And I'm also looking at that destination to make sure my train goes to the right destination. So the students can build this kind of wealth of knowledge. So for instance, um, when we're looking at top down, it might be, for instance, looking at their own lived expectations and applying it to a text in that way. Um, so the research kind of flipped from bottom up to top down, but the general consensus now, um, having looked at different people's work, such as um, Conti, et cetera, um, is that there's, and Liu as well, coming to this conclusion in 2010, is that when students read, they're actually using a mixture of these strategies together. They complement one doesn't outpower the other, and it's about deploying the right strategy at the right time for the right purpose, I guess. So, for instance, oh, sorry, no, go for it. <laughs> well, I think you might be going the right way, same way as me because you said, for instance, I was going to say, so then what were those strategies? What yeah. have you changed in your practice? Absolutely. So, what haven't done a diagnostic, um, what happened was I was I decided that we did the December mock, put all my data in the beast, and lo and behold, the reading was lower. Um, and this reflected, if you look on AQA enhanced results analysis, this reflected the national trend for all centres across the UK. So my my kids weren't any different. Um, and I thought, well, I could start here, but then I thought, right, have a little look at what the kids are actually doing. So I gave them another mock paper just to have a look at. Um, and I found that it was the translation, and I also found it was the written response answers. So for those of you who don't know the GCSE exam for languages, in the reading exam, there are multiple choice questions that test the likes of inference. Um, they might put distractors in. And there's more open-ended responses where it might be, for instance, where does David um, play football? And they have to write a short sentence in response. My students got at those points. And when we reviewed the text, if I give them a highlighter, they would be able to pick out exactly where that piece of information was in that text. But what they weren't doing was they weren't decoding enough specific detail that was required by the mark scheme in order to get the point. So that's where I turned my attention to. And I was looking at that detail. And for the detail, it was always one or two missing bits of vocabulary that they couldn't figure out. And in the past, this has changed now. Um, there was always the requirement for examples to put in unfamiliar vocabulary. Um, I believe that's gone for this year um, onwards um, as we speak. Um, but that was what was always tripping them up. So I decided at that point, having done my literature review, looking at top down, looking at bottom up, it was about building up those strategies, those resilient strategies to help students decode unfamiliar vocabulary, provide them with a few different ones um, so that in the reading exam, they would go in knowing that they had a little bit more confidence behind them, that they could look at a word, take it down and build up that meaning and hopefully see if they could get that extra little bit of detail for those written answers because they could find it <laughs> so obviously the top down for me was working in terms of they're using what they know but they weren't decoding enough so mm -hmm. that's where i took my project so did you have any specific things if you were to say you know there was x y and z that i did in the classroom mm -hmm. that was different what would those few things be so um what the first thing i did was i really looked at morphology um so morphology is um, i mean it's like morph morph is where you obviously that little character you bend them you twist them you do what you want with them that's the idea so you take a word so for instance if i take um to deconstruct in english you've got the two which is the mark of the infinitive you've got construct which is to build up we know it's a verb because we've got the two and we've got deconstruct but then we've got our prefix in front of it, D, which implies um, that D prefix replies to kind of 
undo something. So what I did was we looked at different strategies. We looked at engaging really explicitly with morphology and lessons. So this was primarily done in do nows and in star activities. So one of the things I did was I picked several random Spanish words um, once they didn't know. So this was quite fun, actually, for me as a linguist as well, because I did a lot of historical linguistics. I did Russian psycholinguistics as well. And it was really fun just going through the the dictionary, the Real Academia Española, just to try and find some really obscure words that I know that they could decompose and hopefully get that meaning. So I would give them some really, really random words. I think I'd give them um, to undo, but then start to decompose so one of the strategies would be for instance what component parts can you bring break this word down in so if i give them deshacer to undo they could separate off the er and which is the mark of the infinitive so they know it's to something you've got that ath root to do so you've got hacer in that verb to do and then you've got that des to undo so obviously looking at them splitting up explicitly those parts and see if they can generate that meaning so we did that we then took that to a next level. So I started looking at the infle- inflectional endings of verbs. So by inflectional endings, it's things such as if I say I play, but then I say, for instance, she plays. That S at the end just denotes, we often use the personal pronouns, so I, you, he, she, it's not as important in English. Whereas if you're learning Spanish, for instance, it's really, really important because they don't use the personal pronoun a lot of the time. So you're listening out for those inflectional endings to work out who's doing the action, the subject of the sentence, and you also listen out for that ending as well um, to denote what time frame it is or what tense it's done in. So we then stepped it up a gear and then we stuck in a lot of different tense endings to that as well. So decoding, decoding who's doing what. Um, and then what we also did was we did um, a classic game that I used to love for revising vocabulary, which is verbal dominoes. Actually, I think I nicked that from a maths teacher. So in maths, what they used to do was they used to do like, it's like dominoes where they used to have different like mathematical equations and somebody else would have the answer. So it becomes a verbal chain around the room. And I used to do it with vocabulary. So I'd have the English on one side, I'd have the Spanish on the other side, but for lexical items rather than grammatical items. And again, this was another sticking point in the translation was that my students weren't translating the tenses accurately enough. So what I did was I um, took several verbs, say three or four verbs, but I really, really focused on the inflectional ending. So they had to listen incredibly carefully to ascertain the tense and who was doing that action. So it'd be the difference between I do, I did, he does, he will do, um, to really get them engaged with that inflectional morphology on the end as well. Um, So we did that in lessons as well. Um, We also looked at, um, I gave them a word, give them some context around it, and we looked at connecting that word to the surrounding context to see if they could work out what that word is based on what came afterwards as well. Um, so a, a variety of do now, little start activities before we launched in the main body of the lesson. Um, and then in the run-up to the real exams, we took that further. So when we were looking at a paper, we would highlight an unknown vocab- piece of vocabulary that I knew that they hadn't really realised. It almost seems strange, but you you do get a very, very good read when you've taught the same class for five years of what words they know and what they don't know. It's ridiculous. I don't know how we do it, but I think every language teacher out there has that innate ability to do that. Um, so I would sift through, identify what I knew they definitely wouldn't know and see if they could like morphologically break it down using those bottom-up strategies. Um, so we did that. So that was the intervention itself. And so- 
Sorry. Sounds like there's so much there that that actually, if you're listening to it as a non-MFL teacher, there's still loads there to pick up on, especially with technical vocabulary in, I don't know, science maybe. I'm sure there's more subjects. Absolutely. A hundred percent occur, uh, con- occur, conquer. <laughs> um, just get that morphology right. Um, so yeah, I completely concur with that. Um, when I actually presented... Um, my findings because the teaching learning team we do nuggets um on a morning so we do like a 15 minute nugget we do one on pastoral one on teaching and learning and i presented this and uh, what the example that i used was photosynthesis so if you look at ethis which is from i think it's greek i think which is a process and you look at photo involving light and obviously photosynthesis you you need light for that like that to happen to create the the products from photosynthesis uh, to create the energy and stuff like that. So um, I did present it. It's really, really useful for science. And I would say it's also really useful for other things such as geography. Anything that involves a process, I think, is or really technical vocabulary. It's really It has great implications for it. And it's like translation. For instance, translation for me is going from X to Y in the target language. But if you look at translation in maths, it's the same idea. You just move say a triangle from this position to that position and it's attaching that meaning and yeah seeing that that cross transferability of um prefixes suffixes phonemes and words as well do you think it's something schools could be doing more of actually really harnessing that linguistic knowledge of their languages departments you know you've said you've been um literacy coordinator before do you think that's a position that mfl teachers are actually really quite well positioned for I think we're incredibly well positioned for that. And the reason why I think we are is because we are probably dealing with more basic literacy on a day in day basis than our English colleagues. And uh, maybe I'm wrong, maybe, but that's the experience that I, I've, I feel. And I really do think that we talk about scaffold and we talk about challenge. I think the biggest piece of scaffolding you can give a child is give them that ability to read and to improve their reading ages. And it's it's going beyond just looking at these top-down, bottom strategies. But for instance, if you're in a lesson, having that confidence to deviate. So we have to teach croquette in Spanish because it's an innate part of the Spanish culture. I mean, I could eat my body weight in the things. But for instance, I'm teaching in inner city London with students who have grown up in a council estate and have probably lived there most of their lives. Are they going to have come in contact with a potato croquette? Most likely not. So what's the point in me teaching this word if I'm not going to attach a concept to that label? There's no point in me doing that. And I think, especially looking back on myself when I was a younger teacher, the much less experienced one, and the whole thing was progress over time, progress over time, I wouldn't have had the confidence just to stop, get up Google, put in croqueta, and show them what it was. And by me doing that, what I've come to realize I was actually doing was I was creating gaps in their knowledge and not just their subject knowledge, but also in their cultural knowledge. And I think that's dangerous. Yeah. And that cultural knowledge, that cultural capital is something that, that is actually more linked to reading than than you might necessarily have considered. And uh, I guess that's kind of where you've, where you've gone to with that. Mm. So before we move on, I wanted to ask you a little bit about yeah, you see, teach. Is there anything else to do with this project in particular you want to talk about? Um, with this project in particular, I, I just think it's something that I could really get my teeth into. It's something that I'm really, really proud of. I think it's really given me the just the confidence to go and have a look at more subject specific research, and especially in 
the light of the reforms that are taking place in the GCSEs and it's happening in MFL. Some of you out there might realize, might be aware of that. Some of you might not be. I think it's going to happen for a lot more subjects soon. It's it's given me the confidence almost to question as well the decisions that have been made on a much more higher level and really consider the impact and of decisions that obviously I've got no say in. I can fill in as many kind of consultation forms as I like, but ultimately the DFE will do what the DFE wants. It's given me the confidence to question and have the sound judgment that I can really form ideas and question policy, I guess, as well as research. And I think that's an important thing that us as teachers who are essentially are delivering this on a day and day out basis should be able to do. I think that's so important and that links in really well to talking about the Chartered Teacher course as well because mm. I think I always described it as giving me some professional confidence in exactly the way you've just articulated, you know, feeling like the things you're thinking and deciding yes. actually you've got a sound basis for. Yes, absolutely. And what I think is beautiful about the Chartered Teacher course is because I was thinking about doing a Master's, um, there's a couple of I'd, I'd, I'd identified um, obviously we had the MPQ program come up and for me it was something I mean I always I always value good leadership and I've been blessed in my years um, having an amazing head of department and mentor at my first school um, Heather Dunn and Gilmersgrave and having the most amazing line manager um, at my current school Gavin Palmer and I think performance management sometimes in my experience has always been like a tea box thing but at my current school it's something that's very very different it's seen very very differently and we can very much openly talk about our careers um so for instance mine's got in black and white that i want to be an assistant vice principal or vice principal in the next two or three years um be it in my current school be it somewhere else and also that i would also like to maybe dip my toe in a governmental policy that's written in black and white and i don't think in many schools they would appreciate that but our head's very much of the view of, like, just be open and go for it. She's brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. And we were talking, Gav gave me in one line management session, uh, well, not line management, um, performance management session, he said mm-hmm. to me, engage with more external CPD opportunities. And I was like, oh, what, what does that mean? <laughs> um, and then I realised that actually this was the perfect opportunity to do it. Where I think the charter teacher course is really really unique and really special is you're forced to do more a lot of general things such as you do as modules on assessment construction which was invaluable um you're forced to do kind of some kind of generic things like question and research but then when you come on the projects you can really steer your cpd in the direction which you want and having that ability to do that i think is incredible whereas i look at some of the mpq programs i mean i mean there's about eight of them or something like that there's a ridiculous amount but then I was thinking if I have like MPQ SL am I boxing myself off and that for me is one of the one of the things I don't want to do I don't want to box myself off rather I want to get a wealth of experience and I know my kind of development myself what I haven't got as much experience of is pastoral so for instance I'm not a trained DSL whereas my head's a year all are and I know that's something that I'm going to need to kind of address and maybe look at doing in order to make the next move um, to become maybe vice principal. I don't think it'll be as important for AVP, but definitely for VP, I would need to think about that and address that. 
And for instance, I know people looked at different things in, with regards to behavior as well in, in mm-hmm. the, the charter college. And I mean, I did another pro- mini slightly smaller project on um, autism and teaching children with autism. So you can really, really direct it and rather than feel boxed off. I also think in terms of the reading that you do, because you can steer it in your general direction that you want and because you're forced to question evidence and question research, it's a lot more appropriate. It's a lot more applicable. It feels a lot more relevant. And that was my worry about masters was because when I did my PGC, um, the it was a red brick institution at which i did it it was great but then i was reading all this information all this theory and there was no element of how does this affect my practice there was no element of question that it was just a given and it felt really really disconnected from what was allowing me to survive in deep dark gates head in the classroom <laughs> which trust me it was like a war zone at times but and i think that's really important and that's why i really really enjoyed the course and found it beneficial so if mm-hmm. anybody's thinking of doing it if anybody's in that i know there's a few people i've interacted with on twitter who are considering cteach who are considering mpqs who are considering masters that would be my take on it is that it's a lot more guided by you and i think that's really important yeah i think that's such an important point that last bit that you really can direct it how you want to and that's you know a big difference to a lot of the other things out there so because of course it's provided by the charter college of teaching so can you talk to me a little bit about collegiality what does that mean you know for you in terms of the people you got to meet and work with and <laughs> the what people you're like I got to meet you the... <laughs> <laughs> i think what, i mean i mean just looking at mine and your interaction now i mm-hmm. mean i think a lot of people will probably realize that myself and yourself know each other very well they're very good friends (laughs) and having you as a support in terms of my mentor for the group sessions was incredible I wasn't even going that way but yeah (laughs) fine you go Um, (laughs) so there was that there was also the fact there was other people so for instance Kate Bridges um who is an amazing physics teacher I would never probably mix with a physics teacher outside but we were supporting each other we looked at each other's projects just to like have a look to see if we're on the right track because for myself when I was doing this I am um, my degrees in Spanish Russian and Czech so I never had enough credits at university and at, at um, undergrad level to actually do a um, what you call it a thesis a oh god See, I don't even know the word for it. That's yeah. a, um, what, what do you call it? It's a um, dissertation? dissertation. That's it. So I never had enough. I never had enough credits available to do an actual dissertation. Oh, okay. So this whole writing process for me was it was quite stressful. Whereas mm. Kate obviously had a lot more experience in that than what I did. So mm. it was nice just uh, when I was having these little wobbles to be able to ping her a message, ping a few of the others a little message as well, being like, how are you getting on? How's things going? Are you struggling with this? I'm having this problem. Anybody got any ideas? And that collegiality was just lovely and it really, really opened my network. Um, and we're, we're still in touch. We're still very much in touch. Um, so it's, it's lovely to have that collegiality. And I think just as well, having those phenomenals as well, see teach as well, for me, something really, really prestigious. Um, and as well another thing that i think is worth mentioning is the actual price of um the charter teacher program as well i think it's a it's a lot less i know the mpqs are free but it's a hell of a lot less it's about a tenth the cost of a master's and i just feel that it's it, it was it was probably worth it's for me it's worth more than a master's and i would say as well that um there's one other thing i was going to say it was um 
it just feels like I'm really part of something that's really quite prestigious and it's just nice to be recognized in that way I think mm. And I think my last question on this is for anybody, and this is the type of message that I've had on Twitter in the past, and I imagine you have too now, you've finished mm-hmm. the course as well, that anybody who's thinking about it, but thinking, oh, no, that might not be for me, or uh, I don't know enough about research, or I've not done X, Y, and Z, you know, or maybe I shouldn't do it. What would you say to those people? I would say to those people that... I think it's important. I'm, I'm a research cynic, or at least I was, and I think it's important to open your mind. Uh, there's a quote, what is it? In order to defeat your enemy, you need to know what they're thinking. So this whole <laughs> idea of blocking people rather than reading their tweets. I think it's really, really important that you understand that and look at the flaws, look at the advantages, try it, see what happens. I would say if times are worry about it for you, I would say that you can easily do it. Um, you can spread it out. There's plenty of time between the deadlines. Um, I did it whilst leading a team of 17 as well as examining as well on the side. Um, so there's definitely ways. I know Kate did it having a family as well. <laughs> there's a lot of people that do it. You you can do it. And it's one of those things that you can just chip away. And as long as you chip away regularly and often do like 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I used to do read maybe an article every couple of nights or something like that or a little bit longer. And once you break that down, make your notes, condense your notes, get them into the essay, it's actually really quite manageable, really, really quite manageable. And I would say you're going to be welcomed into a community of people who are as nervous and maybe have that same thought. And it's nice just to speak to other people like that and realize that research isn't as scary as what you think it is. And I think our job is as well as in terms of being research informed practitioners is to look at those big words that researchers use, ask what does it actually mean in layman's terms and communicate that to other people. Um, and I know one of my f- good friends, Dr. Paul O'Neill from the University of Sheffield always said a good academic will always use smaller words because the ones that don't know what they're talking about use the bigger words. Um, <laughs> and I think that's kind of our job is to convert those bigger words into this. So what, what does this look like? I think that summed up quite well my whole intention of from page to practice as it mm. is. So um, so before we wrap up and do the final section, is there anything, one, that you want to plug? Where can people follow you? What are you looking into next? Kind of what are your interests now? Um, so, I mean, I'm on Twitter, Senor Cordero, um, which funnily enough translates into Mr. Lam. Um, <laughs> for any of those of you who don't do Spanish. Um, I've also got a blog that's primarily Span- like language teaching can't get my words out um mfl based um as well and my current interests actually are of um during lockdown I, I, I decided to make some video tutorials that have grown exponentially which is quite ridiculous <laughs> um bear in mind all i did was hang an ipad off the side of my bed and write on the on my bedroom floor while my other half was doing architecting in the sitting room um, um, and it's just like looking at the power of those video tutorials and really, really harnessing their power because I think, especially when some of those my own students have sought them out before I've even told them and said, so we've seen your video and like, it was really, really good. And I'm using it to revise for my end of year exams in year nine. I was like, all right, then they must be all right. So looking at how I can harness those videos and really, really just put them out there so students have got something to revise for. I really don't believe in charging for things. So um yeah just putting them out on youtube and having that resource out there for people to use that's, that's fantastic 
And actually, I shared one of your videos recently, your most recent revision one, and that went down well with so many teachers that just, you know, people appreciate having their time saved and being able to go, this is a fully packaged resource already. I need to do nothing with this. Bam, share it. And I know so many people appreciated that. Thank you. Sign up to receive the From Page to Practice weekly newsletter to read tips and advice from my guests, as well as information on upcoming episodes. Find the link in the show notes for this episode. So, final section. Now, this is the section that I'm still trying to think of a decent name for. I think it might be the the CPD library round, the bookshelf round. Um, So... I originally thought of this as a quick fire round, but then I remembered that teachers like to talk and give reasons for things. So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> feel free. Especially if it's linguists. Not... <laughs> exactly. Your so opinion, your justification, your development. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. <laughs> Don't forget your tenses. Yes. So, um, <laughs> so if it's not just a quick title, that's absolutely fine. Absolutely. But I'm going to give you a category and I'd like to have either a book or a text or a something uh, mm-hmm. that is related to that category for you. So... Okay. First one, what first got you into evidence-informed practice? Oh, God. Um, evidence-informed practice, first thing. Can I say something that's not a book or not an article? Why not? You're only my second guest. So, Why not mess it up already? So actually, for me, it was something that we do at um, school. We used to have, and it stopped. I'm really, really angry, and it's something that I want to redo. We used to have... Um, a monthly um, meeting of teachers that we could come around. We would be given a text to read and we'd just sit and discuss it. And oh, nice. I just yeah, enjoyed yeah. that little bit of kind of pedagogical sparring. Um, that's mm-hmm. what really got me into it and kind of criticising being an organer. I think having a strong opinion and defending it till the cows come home is in my nature. <laughs> so I really enjoyed that. Um, so yes, that's what got Those me. Those opportunities are so important. Yeah. It's finding the time for it, isn't it? I know yes. that in my last role before I moved on to what I'm doing now, it's mm. one of the things I tried to get in. It just it just didn't take off it's in the, the way I wanted it to. It's the first thing that falls by the wayside, isn't it? It really yeah. is. Um, so the text or whatever that resonated with you the most? Um, without a shadow of a doubt, it's Closing the Vocabulary Gap by Alex Quigley. Um, there's also a multitude of resources that he's got on his website that go with it and um, closing the reading gap is also really good but I think for me practical wise and what I do in the day to day in the classroom for teaching vocabulary um, it doesn't go amiss and I think it also is just it, it's brilliant yeah I feel like there might be some overlaps with what I'm going to say here but I'm going to carry on anyway go for it. had the biggest impact on your practice biggest impact on my practice I tell you I'm going to come at a different angle and I'm going to come at it from an angle of a mentor. And I want to mm-hmm. say Peps McCree, um, Peps McCree, um, lean lesson planning. And the reason nice. why I would say that is because the structure that a trainee teacher that the, they were getting feedback at the time was quite, I don't know how to say it. It wasn't very ordered mm-hmm. for me. Lean lesson planning, the, the wonderful thing about Peps McCreary's writing is you can read one sentence and you take something out of that sentence. It's a very, very short book. It looks like a primary mm-hmm. school reader, but he packs so much into those 50 odd pages that it just makes sense. And for trainee teachers, for new teachers, for ECTs, it's a book that I would really, really recommend more than anything else that they read. So that you've covered my next one, but there might be another book that you're going to say should be required reading for ECTs or ITTs. Lean lesson planning, I would say Doug Lamov, Teach Like a Champion. Again, Doug Lamov is also another one that I could say is one that I'm a bit conflicted with at times. There's a lot of good stuff in, but there's some stuff that I don't agree with. Um, lean lesson planning, 
um, teach like a champion and making every lesson count as well, I think is quite a good one. Um, again, the MFL one, there's bits in there that I disagree with. But there we go. And to be honest with you, most of the bits that I disagree with are the behavior bits because I think where you get research on behavior and your school's context, that for me is usually where you find the biggest discrepancies between um you find the biggest discrepancies between what people in research say. And there's different things on research here. There's a lot of research on behavior and different aspects of it. Um, and it's it's a battle that I'm fighting at the minute, actually, because of the ECT program that we follow at our school, Ambition. It, it almost somewhat goes, well, not goes against, but it, it doesn't reinforce our behavior systems in the way in which it should. Um, so I'm having to, yeah, cleverly tiptoe around that. <laughs> the thing is you can't agree with everything you read and if you did no. you're getting nothing from it anyway right so yeah. it's good to be able to identify this bits that you disagree with mm-hmm. um where did i get to oh inspired you inspired me um i would say zoya elders um book and i can see the front cover of it and i can't think of it and it's all on marginal gains and those little nudges and I think for me, if we're talking about, I, I mean, I know growth mindset's another of those real hot potatoes. Myself, personally, I really believe in it. And I think it's something that we should be doing with students and we should be looking at empowering them um, and warm strict. For me, the perfect combination for behavior is warm strict and growth mindset. Um, and I think so yelled in terms of looking at identifying little things, analyzing how we can nudge them a little bit further and then developing that explicitly, it just made sense. And I'll look at my year 11s and looking at their right. So if I bring up the beast on the on the board, we look at the tables, we always look at the, the grey boundaries explicitly. Um, and I don't think many people do that. I think, again, it's one of those things that people are like, oh, it's not worth the time. I think it is because if you have a student, for instance, who's getting a grade three on a listening paper in Spanish, they're often two marks away from a grade four. Then they may be five marks away from a grade five or seven more marks later, you're on a grade six. So reframing those conversations when they get a paper back with grade three on the front and just say, right, if you nudge this, if you answer every single multiple choice question, you've got a higher chance of getting that mark. Or wait there, if we focus on how we lift in the target language for that last paper, section in spanish you could even get another three marks there then that would bring your mark up to a grade six but even though that says a grade three on the front so am i worried as your teacher no i'm not but these are the other things that we need to do and we need to nudge and that's why i really loved that book it was quite it, it really it helped me frame the conversations i was going to have with my students and how to nudge them on You've just proved why I couldn't make this a quick fire round because we'd have Sorry. lost that amazing. <laughs> no, but we'd have just lost that amazing explanation you gave if I'd have done that. Three left. Your Go most on. recent read. So it could be a blog, it could be a book, it could be a article um, out of impact. Um, my most recent read, unfortunately, has been the DFA guidance from the new GCSE <laughs> specification. <laughs> totally um, understandable. <laughs> yes. So that's my most recent read. In terms of actual research, though, um, most recent read. Um, I reread Breaking the Sound Barrier again um, because there's a few little bits that I just wanted to unpick a little bit more and put them into my practice. So, yeah. Yep. Two more. What's up next? Anything on your to-be-read pile? On my to-be-read pile, um, uh, I don't know at the minute. Um, 
I know, I think Steve Smith's got a new book out with John Franco Conti. I'll always have a look at that stuff um, because it's subject specific. I think it's really important to engage with that. Um, not quite sure at the minute. I'll see what comes out. Um, something probably, there's a great one actually that um, Gav was reading on Breaking the Class Ceiling. Um, obviously with this thick accent, you can probably tell I'm from the coal mine in terms of the Northeast. So um, it's something I'm really, really invested in and that's uh, which informs why I'll always stay in the state sector um, because that's something I really believe in. So I want to have a read of that book. And again, it's things like cultural literacy as well. Like I've, I've got a real issue with cultural capital. Um, I don't like that term at all, whereas cultural literacy for me is more important. Fair enough. Yes. And the last one, is there a book that you don't think actually exists but should, something you think all teachers should be able to just whip off the shelf and read or that you'd like to hear about? I would really like to hear some more on um, neurodiversity, um, some specific strategies for neurodiversity, which neurodiversity is in its, by its very nature diverse. So it's probably going to be a difficult one to write. Um, there's, there's, there's stuff out there, but I just think it's those students for me, I find are amazing to teach. I love teaching them, but sometimes I'm just like, right, I'm trying every strategy that I know. And I'm not sure where to go next. So that's what I would like. Great. So that has flown by 45 minutes and that's just gone in the blink of an eye. I don't know how we've managed that. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap it up and finish Um, off? Just thank you so much for having us on the podcast. Um, Really, really enjoyed it. And I think just please, please, please go for the C-Teach course if you can, because it's, it's just unreal. Great. Lovely way to end. Thank you very much. See you later. Bye. Are you interested in evidence-informed practice? Do you have a favourite edu book? Have an idea of what great CPD is and should be? Or to just generally have a chat about education? Please sign up to join me for a conversation. I rely on volunteers from all contexts and levels of experience. Visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast for the sign-up form. I hope you enjoyed listening to my chat with Adam. We could have gone on forever. Next week's episode features another wonderful languages teacher, and that's Steph Lancake. And this time she's talking on the whole school topic of revision skills. I've heard that since the recording, Steph has had the green light to roll out her plans across the school, so you really don't want to miss it. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>